Uh, the scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, and then 21 through 22. This can be found on page 994 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat in his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then going on to verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with who, with you, I am well pleased. Here ends the scripture reading. Yes. Well, it's so great to have everybody with us this morning, and, and uh, especially the children, even as uh, we're without program this morning. I hope there may be a couple words in there for you guys as well. When you are introducing yourself at a party, not that we should really be going to a lot of parties these days, but, but when you are introducing yourself somewhere, like at a party, how do you explain who you are? Do you tell them about your work, like what you do for a living or what you used to do for a living? Do you prefer to, to talk about um, where you live or where you're from? Do you tell them something about your family or about your uh, recreational hobbies or pursuits? I mean, you've got to say something, right, when to describe who you are. And how we describe ourselves um, gives us a little window into how we define our own lives. When you're young, you're tempted to think that your identity is something that you construct with the choices that you make. And so we have choices like where we go to school and where we go to work and our relationships. And when we make those choices, we often subconsciously think that we are also choosing an identity through these choices. Maybe it's because your favorite uncle, when you were little, put you on his knee and asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Notice he didn't say, what do you want to do when you, were, when you grow up. And so you were expected to give an answer, like I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a fireman, which meant that from an early age, we assume that we can determine and create our own identity. And we are the ones who get to choose what kind of life we want, and so we do that through our choices. And so the thinking goes, if you don't like the life that you have, you can simply get a new life by making a new set of choices as if you were your own creator. 
But eventually, life has a way of making it clear that we're not in control. Uh, In time, you have to navigate your way through crises that you could not have imagined. You have to respond to events like a global pandemic that you didn't plan for or events that disrupted the plans that you did have. And then as you continue to grow, you find that everything you worked so hard to collect is slowly slipping through your fingers. Your body no longer looks or feels the way that you want it to feel or look. You have to retire from your job. You may even have to give up the big, beautiful house that you raised your family in. Sadly, you end up burying the people that you love the most, and eventually you give up your independence and you move to a place where others take care of you. Now you're probably wondering, why did I come to church this morning? We'll get to the good news in a minute, I promise. But what does this trajectory say about our identity as we pass through all of these inevitable losses? Have you become a different person through each of those losses? Of course not, unless you believe the lie that you are what you do, you are what others say about you, and you are where you, you are, who you, who you are is where you live or who is in your life. So this morning we're talking about identity, what defines us, how we form our identities and how our identities and our understanding of who we are shapes how we live in the world as we cultivate Christ, his life growing in us. And that brings us to John the Baptist, who was preaching judgment down by the Jordan River. You might remember John the Baptist in Matthew. It talks about how he ate um, honey and bugs, and he wore a belt with camel's hair, you know, and um, the guy who lived out in the wilderness. He was your basic Turner Burn kind of preacher. He warned with really severe words that the time had come to repent because the Messiah was coming. And when he comes, he's going to rain fire down from heaven. He has a winnowing fork in his hand, and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. You don't want to be the chaff because that's going to get burned, and so you better choose to repent and clean up your life. John was inviting people to be baptized in a way that was uh, unique at that time. It's different than Christian baptism. Christian baptism baptism hadn't yet come on the scene. Um, John's baptism, he was attempting to wash away people's sins and to purify them so that they could start over and have another chance. It was a common practice among first century Jews and even Gentile converts to Judaism, but it turned out to be a futile effort. After the people would come out to John and to be baptized and get another chance, then they would return home where they would eventually sin again with more bad choices and have to return again to the river to get dunked again and then go back home and back and forth and back and forth and on the treadmill it goes, never being able to get life right once and for all. We kind of like John's message, or at least we understand it. It's a message that says to us, try harder, make better choices. You're not right yet. Keep trying. It's a message that we know. But we've been at this game long enough to know that we can never make ourselves good enough. 
We can have a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a hundredth chance, and we will mess that chance up too. There has to be another hope for how we will define who we are and how we will live in the world. And so one day Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God and perfect in every way, had no need for baptism, shows up down by the river at John's baptism. And John said to the people, look out, here's this, the one that I was warning you about. Here he is. But to John's surprise, Jesus did not bring fire from heaven. There was no winnowing fork in his hand. Instead, he said that he was up there to apply for baptism himself. John was surprised by this. He thought Jesus should baptize him. He's the perfect one who has figured life out, who has flawless, never gotten anything wrong. So why would Jesus want to be baptized? Not because he needed to have anything washed away. Not because he needed ch another chance to get life right. No, he chose to be baptized to identify with us in our need. It was out of love and empathy for the entire human family once, something once and for all that will take us off the treadmill of trying harder, failing, and asking for another chance, and failing again. Jesus chose to be baptized in order to take our need upon himself. And so when he went under the water, it's as though he took all of humanity with him. And then when he comes out of the water, it says the heavens ripped open and the voice of the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down and right here we have this beautiful image of the three persons of the Trinity in this moment. The Father, voice from heaven, the Spirit coming down as a dove, and the Son there to be baptized on behalf of humanity. It was significant that Jesus wasn't given this designation before the gospel writers record him doing any particular, anything particularly meaningful or valuable. He hadn't started his ministry yet. He hadn't done any healings. He hadn't begun his teaching or his public ministry. It's as if the Father is saying, I am pleased with you, not because you've done such a great job at being the Messiah. No, I'm pleased with you because you're my son and it is my nature to love you. It is also incredibly significant that Jesus doesn't receive these words from the Father this designation as the beloved son. He doesn't get that at his birth. That would have been a good time for this scene. For, you know, he comes out of the womb and there he is and the voice from heaven and the spirit comes. That would have been a good time for that beloved designation to come. It doesn't come when he's a child in the temple talking with the scholars. It doesn't come until he identifies with our desperation in an identification that is so total and so complete that we are meant to hear these words spoken to us as well. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. In the Christian church, we baptize people precisely to avoid the fearful discovery that life is a continual experience of failures and losses. In the baptism that you experienced, if you have been baptized, 
In your baptism, whether you were an infant or an adult or somewhere in between, in that moment, can you remember it? Spiritually, the heavens opened and the voice of the Father came from heaven and spoke and said, You are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And it's not because of anything you've done. It's because it is God's nature to love those who He created. And so we're given that right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, we're given a new identity. If you were an infant when you were when you were baptized, you didn't even know it. That's how much God loves you. He loves you before you even knew you needed His love. And that means that the rest of our life is a constant process of living the adventure that we're free to embark on precisely because we know that we are God's beloved children. That's who we are. So you can work hard. You can strive hard. You can try really hard to be good. That's what beloved people do. You can achieve quite a bit. Beloved people achieve quite a bit in life. You can even make mistakes along the way. You will sin. All you have to do is apologize and ask for forgiveness. Why? Because that's what beloved children do. We trust that there is grace and forgiveness for us. And then go ahead and embark on the adventure of life, not in order to be something, not in order to accumulate or construct your identity or self-worth. No, we embark on life with its highs and its lows, with its horrible days and its wonderful days, precisely because we've been given our identity as the beloved of God. It's a gift. It's given to us right from the front end. But this is hard. It's hard to go. The journey from the head to the heart is a long one. It's easy to say this. It's hard to believe it. And it's easy to know it in our heads, but it's hard to feel it. And so that's a lifelong struggle of knowing or beloved of God and then feeling that. Here's how Father Henry Nowen articulated his struggle with this. Personally, as my struggle reveals, I don't often feel like a beloved child of God. But I know that that's my most primal identity, and I know that I must choose it above and beyond my hesitations. Strong emotions, self-rejection, and even self-hatred justifiably toss you about, but you're free to respond as you will. You are not what others or even you think about yourself. You are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are a full member of the human family, having been known before you were conceived and molded in your mother's womb. In times when you feel bad about yourself, try to choose to remain true to the truth of who you really are. Look in the mirror each day and claim your true identity. Act ahead of your feelings and trust that one day your feelings will match your convictions. Choose now and continue to choose this incredible truth as a spiritual practice. Claim and reclaim your primal identity as a beloved daughter or son of a personal creator. So we got to choose the truth that we are the beloved even when and especially when we don't feel it. Eventually, the heart will catch up. 
When the Apostle Paul talked about baptism, he talked about it as a dying and rising. Look at this from Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is pretty complex language here, isn't it? But it's also one of the most radically prophetic claims that Christianity has that challenges our society. We don't believe in this horrible paradigm that life, that you spend the first half of life accumulating things and people and achievements and success, and then you spend the second half of life losing all of those things. That's, that's not our motto. We gave that up. We died to that when we were baptized. Um, we gave up that illusion. Instead, what we get is something far greater, far deeper, far wider, far more eternal than all of that other stuff put together, and that is the love of God from which nothing will separate us. Paul says later in Romans, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God. That's what we get to keep. Everything else in life Consider it a loss. You'll lose it. And so now we can go through life with open hands. Things will be placed in them. Things will be taken out of them. But the love, the love you get to keep, that is for all eternity. So right from the beginning, this is how the early church understood baptism. We have some of the liturgies from the first and second centuries of the early church baptism. And in those days, churches didn't have, you know, beautiful sanctuaries and baptismal fonts. They conducted their baptisms down by the river, always on Easter morning. And the way that it would happen was that the baptismal candidate would go down into the water and take off their clothes. And in taking off their clothes, they would say, we are putting off the old man, the old woman, the old habits, the old addictions, the old illusions of life that is, is self-constructed. We're putting all of that off. And then this person would go get completely immersed into the water by the priest and the priest would say, buried with Christ in baptism. And then they would come out of the water and the priest would say, you have now risen to new life in Christ. And as they got out of the water, then they would put on new garments that they had never worn before as a sign of putting on their new or actually their true identity as Christ's followers, as the beloved children of God. They would no, no longer live according to the old paradigms or the old patterns of being afraid of losses. Now they have inherited a life that nobody or nothing could take away. The incredibly significant thing about their baptism is that the church was persecuted 
heavily during these days, and Christians' lives were at stake. If you're going to sign up to become a Christian, you're also going to sign your death warrant, essentially. But yet, people flocked to the church. They applied for baptism. They wanted to be baptized, even though they knew they were signing their death warrant. And the church continued to grow and grow and grow until eventually it took over the Roman Empire. Why were people so attracted to this winsome community who had no power in society and was constantly being persecuted and killed for what they were believing in? Why would people do this? Because they were unafraid. This is something that Caesar could never figure out in all of his years of trying to snuff out the church. He tried to use fear tactics to control and to persecute, but it didn't work, and Caesar couldn't figure it out. That they were unafraid because they had already died in their baptism to anything that Caesar could ever take away from them, including their lives. And so they're free. Why? Because you can't scare dead people, right? They've already given up everything that could be threatened, that could be lost. And so to this day, we conduct baptisms. When we do, we're essentially conducting funeral services. Now, let me be clear about that. We're saying that this adult or this child has died to the old enslaving illusion that life is something that we construct through our own choices. We've died to the horrible philosophy of life that says it's only a matter of time before I lose everything, so I'm going to be constantly afraid. We've died to that, we've given it up, and we've raised to new life as children of God, beloved children, and not even the gates of hell can prevail over beloved children of God. So it's as if Luke and the Apostle Paul are saying to us, as we think about, maybe remember our baptism, its significance, its meaning, and how it's supposed to shape our lives, the Scriptures are saying to us, what are you worried about? Are you worried about losing your job? Well, are you worried about being unfulfilled in your work? You've already died to this silly illusion that you're important because of what you do. You're not important because of what you do. You're important because you're the beloved child of God. Are you worried about losing your health? Well, of course you're going to lose it. We're all going to lose it. But we've already uh, received eternal life through baptism. Are you worried about losing your children? That's an inevitable loss that's supposed to happen. But the day that you baptize them, you place them into the hands of God. And those are the best hands in which to leave your children. So am I saying that the losses that we experience in life shouldn't be or aren't painful? Of course not. Is there something wrong with me if I experience anguish when I experience loss? Absolutely not. Let me be clear about that too. We all experience losses, and some of you have experienced losses much more severe and greater than I have as of yet, and so I don't want to say anything trite here. I'm not saying that losses we experience shouldn't be or won't be painful. What I am saying is that everything we have will ultimately end in loss except 
for the love of God. That's the only thing that will remain. And so we've died to the illusion that we have to live in fear of, lo of losing what we hold so dearly. Because when we're afraid of the loss, then we are unwilling to take the risk of love. So what then are we to say? What defines you? Is it your health? Is it the stuff you want and don't have? Is it your profession or your accomplishments? Do your failures define you? Is it the people you hang out with or the hurts you've experienced? By no means. Your life is defined by the one who created you in his image, who called you by name, and in your baptism has called you the beloved, and that is secure for all eternity. As we come to the table now this morning, what we, prompt, what we believe and what we profess at our baptism is sealed here at the table. We take this bread as a reminder of the finality, of the completion when Christ sacrificed himself on the cross to put an end to the treadmill of trying harder once and for all. And yet we continue to struggle in this life and so we come to this table and we taste the grace that will finally be completed when Christ returns and makes everything new. And so when we come to the table this morning, we say, Lord, I, I want to know that I am a beloved in the deepest part of my being. Help me to know that. All who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are welcome to the table today. There are four stations here in the sanctuary. You can go to the one closest to you and take the sacrament, return to your seat until everyone is seated, and then we will continue and close our time in worship. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Let's pray. Your word of light and hope floods into our lives, O oh God. We have lived in darkness, in despair and fear, doubt and strife. But on this day of celebration, you remind us that we are marked by you to be witnesses to your light of new hope. As the heavens opened at Jesus' baptism, so is your love poured out on us. And so we today bring before you names and situations which concern us as Mount Olympus Church, people in our company who face illness and grief, physical, spiritual, and relational challenges. God, we lift up baby Ray Lynn and baby Richard. We pray for continued strength and healing. We lift up the residents in Boulder County, Colorado, where over a, a thousand homes were destroyed due to the fire. We pray for your provision and for your hope and comfort. God, we lift up Bernie, who is struggling to heal after a serious infection and whose husband died this past week. And we pray for continued healing for Pauline, for back relief and a sprained ankle, for Alicia and her ankle injury, for Candy as she recovers from her back surgery now at home, for Ryan after his heart procedure. We lift up Jody with health and mental health issues, for Jackson and his sensory processing disorder, 
and for Brooke as she continues to recover from surgery from her torn ACL. God, we lift up those being treated for cancer, especially we pray for Katie, who needs to gain strength for upcoming cancer surgery. We pray that you'll be with Gary in New Jersey, baby Hazel and Nancy. Bring healing and hope. For those dealing with COVID and the long-term effects, we lift up Jean and Peggy, Steve in Chicago, Gail, Yuka, Mesa, and Josh. We lift up the healthcare workers who are overwhelmed by COVID cases. And oh God, we pray for the spread of COVID and all of its variants to stop. We lift up Bill and all of those who are looking for employment and we ask that you, the matchmaker, will put gifts to use for your kingdom. And for Matt and everyone struggling with addiction, we pray for freedom and hope and a deep sense of their knowing their beloved identity in you. We ask for your mercy on them, O oh Lord. Heal and bind up their wounds and help us to be people who are ready to be involved in ministries of care and compassion, prayer and presence, peace and justice, bringing the light of your hope to these who dwell in darkness and despair. Today we gather as brothers and sisters of Christ to remember the extraordinary sacrifice you made in sending Jesus, your beloved Son, to be with us. We thank you for his truth and grace in his words, actions, and obedience to suffering on the cross. And Lord, we come to you now to ask forgiveness for any thoughts, words, or deeds that have not honored your name. Forgive us for the times we have chosen to live out of a false sense of who we are, selfishly, rather than to heed your calling. We invite you to inhabit our hearts now as we take communion. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us as we share this meal. Bind us together as one family, filled with your love, even as we pray as Jesus taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs> 